Okay, if you open up to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, I will continue. I started two weeks ago. Just today, I'll end it. Speaking on marriage, the two shall become one. Uh-oh. <laughs> I like that. Uh-oh. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husband's as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, like always, God, for giving us insights into not just who you are, not just who we are individually, but who we are corporately, what it means to be married, what it means to be a Christian husband, what it means to be a Christian wife. We thank you, Father God, for giving us in-depth insight and understanding of what it means to become one flesh. We thank you, Father God, for the high regard that you have for the institution of marriage. We thank you, Father God, that it's not about just getting together and see if something works but it's about the glory of you, God, in marriage. A reflection of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity and the unity and the harmony that's within the Godhead that was called for marriages, Father God. And we know, God, unfortunately, that our first parents have sinned and we have followed in their footsteps, Father God. But by grace, Christ has reinstituted this wonderful institution, Father God, where a husband can genuinely start to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Father God, help us in this understanding in the culture that we live in, Father God. I ask that you come and wash our minds, Father God. Come, Father God, and to renew our minds by the the water of the word, Father God, that we can see more clearly into what Paul is teaching us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm following up on my last message about marriage, which was out of Genesis chapter 2. And of course, we know it. And Paul uses it here, that the two shall become one flesh. And he even calls it a mystery. And a mystery it is. And uh, we wanted to see that there was uh, a purpose in God's action. It wasn't a mistake that Adam was alone for a, a short season on this earth. It was to highlight the need of a helper. It was to highlight the dignity, the worth of the woman, when he saw her, he, excla- he, he exhorted himself, he exhorted his wife, and he cried out, finally, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It was to highlight the importance, the beauty, the magnificence of Eve 
and coming alongside her husband who was called. The husband was called to keep the garden, to cultivate the garden. He was to work the garden. And as we found out a couple of weeks ago, that those that language is, is, is reserved in the Old Testament for the priest in the temple. It was work and worship for Adam. And that Eve was to come alongside and to be a helper in Adam's vocation. To put it bluntly, Adam could not do what he was called to do if it wasn't for his wife. She had a high vocation in helping her husband. And we saw that. But of course, as wonderful it is, we know that sin sin entered into the world and, and marred even the first parents that were called to this high uh, institution of marriage and worship and love where the love was characterized by they were naked and unashamed. How majestic, how beautiful, how the poetry that the Hebrew language used to express an intimate sexual spiritual union is incredible. Unashamed and naked. So vulnerable. The dignity, you can search all the literature in all the world and come up with nothing that can express the, the sacredness of marriage the way the scriptures do. Even that one sentence. But we want to carry on because as much as the ideal is wonderful and it's good for Christians to understand that there is uh, a model, there's a reason, there's a purpose for marriage, uh, we all know that we have the seed of corruption in us and it gets a little difficult at times, amen? <laughs> Trust me, I, I even told my wife yesterday, I said, honey, you know, I, I need to apologize. I said, I'm studying this out for the last week and all I can see is my failures, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and it wasn't a self-condemning thing. It was, it's not something I didn't know, but it's something that I had to confess and to realize that I still fall short of the very message I preach for Christ. I still fall short. I think I hit a couple of marks here and there, you know, but I, we all fall short. So as we go through this, remember, and this is not just for husbands and wives, this is for every Christian. It is wonderful to know as Christians that there is a purpose for marriage. There's an ideal to marriage. And there's the perfect example of marriage. And guess what? It's not Adam and Eve anymore. It's Christ and the church is the perfect example. And it's important for us to know that. So we're not just sort of feeling our way through with the rest of the culture, you know, changing what marriage is from every uh, generation to generation and making it something that it's not, just so it's, it fits for the day. You know, it's the flavor of the day. If it doesn't work, change the flavor, change the law, change the legislation. Make it work. At all sakes, just make it work. At least as Christians, we know there is something that's not just ideal, but it's divinely ideal. So what must we do as Christians? And Well, our text tonight is full of understanding that we need to know. But let me, let me say this. I can never, ever drain everything that's being said here in a 40-minute sermon. I could never do it. Maybe 10 40-minute sermons, I can't do it. You know, but I just want to bring some things to light today about what Paul is talking about and give us the framework, at least the framework today, and with some of its application of what Paul is talking about here for uh, understanding of marriage, uh, for those who are married, those who hope and pray to be married, uh, for those who need understanding and even being healed from marriages, because marriages can be very damaging, very damaging. If a marriage is not healthy, it can damage a husband, it can damage 
a wife, it can damage children. Through this kind of understanding, we can understand, oh, now I understand why my house was such and such. Because the roles were not defined. Either daddy or mommy, it wasn't there. Something was missing. And we could understand it, bring understanding into my own life and growing up as a child. Before we go into the text, though, for understanding, there are some preliminary remarks that must be said before we can even understand what Paul is saying here from a cultural point of view. We need to understand that Paul's not speaking into a vacuum. There's a reason he said this. And we need to know what that reason is. And Paul is writing to true Christians who know the love of Christ. That's, we have to know that. These are Christians that know and have experienced the love of Christ. They have a reverence for Christ in their heart. They have experienced the joy of their salvation. Without this, only Christians can understand this text. Please understand that. No one could ever understand it, never mind obey it, unless a person be born again. Never. This doesn't deal with the what-if scenarios. And I'll give you an example. I did a wedding uh, about six months ago. I think it was September. Uh, Not about three months. In September, I did a wedding. And like always, my uh, model for a wedding is that I'll do... Maybe six, seven, eight minute sermonette. And then I will lay a charge to the husband. The charge to the husband will be, if not four minutes, it's five, six, seven minutes. I, I will stare the husband in the face, eyeball to eyeball, and I will lay a charge from the Lord to their heart. I will lay before their conscience. And then maybe a minute to the wife about obedience. Well, I did this back in September, and by the time I got to the food buffet line, I was surrounded by three women who did not like the obey part. It's all they heard. I loved them, and I listened to them. My wife came to my rescue. But I, but I listened, and I listened, and I listened to what they said, and I said, is that all you heard? And, and they, didn't, they didn't have an answer. I said, for seven minutes, I spoke to the husband on how he's supposed to love his wife, sacrificially die to everything else except for his wife's affection. Did you hear that? They couldn't even go there. <laughs> All of a sudden, I started getting what-if scenarios. And we're in a nice location, and she pointed at the bridge and told me, if my husband told me I had to jump off the bridge, should I jump? <laughs> I appeased them the best I could, you know what I mean? I was, I'm like, I'm like oh. uh, then my wife came, finally rescued me. But that's what's out there. Understand something. When a first century woman heard this text, she was clear, she understood what was going on. There was no what-if scenarios taking place whatsoever. Their heart was so filled with the love of Jesus Christ that when they heard this text, their heart leaped inside them. They were not concerned with what happens if my, my husband wants me to jump into the arena with the gladiators or fight wild beasts at the Colosseum. There was none of that nonsense. They knew what was going on here. They experienced the love of God. We can't explain this text to non-believers. Only those who have genuinely experienced the love of mercy and forgiveness of Christ can understand what this text means. Second is the extremely low view that the ancient world had to two things. Actually three. 
Women, marriage, and sex. Ancient world had an extremely low view. And I know what you're going to say, right? So do we today. Nothing's changed. Extremely low view. There were three major cultures clashing together in the ancient world in the first, of the first century. There was the Jewish culture. There was the Greek culture. And there was the Roman culture. And they all had their thoughts regarding marriage, women, and sex. In Jewish thought, though they should have known better, marriage itself became cheap. Jesus went toe-to-toe with this cheap, low view of marriage. Uh, The divorce rate amongst the Jewish, even Jewish leaders at the time of Christ was extremely high. We see it in Matthew chapter 5. But chapter 19, Matthew 19, 3 verses, verses uh, 3 to 9, are very telling. Let's read them. And, uh, and Pharisees, that's religious leaders, came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Highlight any cause, because that's what was going on. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So that they no longer are two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. See, Jesus went toe-to-toe, even in his day. The religious leaders, they were marrying, divorcing, marrying, divorcing. It was almost like a sport. At a total convenience. That's why they said, for any cause. And Jesus puts him in the place, and how does he put him in that place? Does he give an opinion? Or does he quote the scripture? He quotes the scripture. He quotes the scripture. In theory and theology, the Jewish culture had the highest view of marriage in the ancient world. But by the time of Jesus and Paul's day, divorce became tragically, tragically easy and convenient amongst the Jewish population. Listen to scholar William Barclay. He writes concerning the Jewish man's conception of a woman. Barclay quote. The Jew had a low view of a woman. In his morning prayer, there is a sentence that a Jewish man gave thanks to God, quote, that God had not made him like a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. He goes on to say, in the Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely a husband's possession to do with as he willed. As bad as that sounds, the Greeks were no better. To sum up the Greeks' understanding of marriage and prostitution, I have three lines. I mean marriage and women. Prostitution was an essential part of the Greek world and religion. If you're familiar with the Greek religion, the Greek world. The wife was for two things. Bearing children and keeping the home. All other women were for pleasure. That sums up the Greek philosophical approach to sex, women, and marriage of the first century. 
The Romans were the worst offenders. It's interesting that in the first 500 years of the Republic of Rome, there's not one case, one known case of divorce. But by the time of Paul's day, of Paul's preaching, it was so rampant that people were divorced not just up to 10 times, but up to 20 times in a short life. That's how rampant it was. There were moralists, there were people that were pure, but there were far and in between. This is the culture that Paul is writing into right now. This is what's going on. There was a basic meltdown within the family unit. Society was fractured because of the low view of women, marriage, and sex. And society was suffering greatly for it. I believe that we still live in the same atmosphere today. And it's into this climate that Paul came preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not holding back anything. Going toe-to-toe, not just with the sin, but going toe-to-toe with the, the, the breakdown of society, starting with the husband and wife family unit. Paul stood against the cultural norms of his day and called men, called men back to fidelity and the honoring of their wives as their own bodies, to cherish their wife. This is brand new in the ancient world. To hear these kind of words, this was shocking to an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman, even to an ancient Jew. This was shocking. What we hear and we know intuitively as Christians, this was hot off the press, this was brand new. But Paul went toe-to-toe with them. He elevated through God's gospel. A woman back in the man, back into God's image in a high place and honor in society. The Christian gospel did that. Christianity had a great cleansing effect on society, <clears throat> on the home life, and brought some social unity out of social chaos. That was the church. The church didn't transform Rome, but now there was something, there was an entity in ancient Rome that was morally bankrupt, socially bankrupt, and this entity was called the Christian church. And people would come in and they would hear about the gospel of salvation, and they would hear how husbands ought to love their wives, and wives to respect their husbands. Such teaching they didn't hear came with the gospel. But today, there still lies much confusion when it comes to this text. Much. Even with, um, amongst Christians. It stirs up a negative connotations about a woman's role and worth today. This text is not about submission. The text is about love and respect. The emphasis is not on submission. It's on love. There are 13 verses we read. Two and a half are applied to a woman. Nine and a half are applied to the husband. The emphasis is on the husband. And so I will preach it from that emphasis. The one thing, two things that characterize a wife is submit, used twice, and respect. The one word used for the husband is love or loved compared with Christ's love. That's used over six times. 
And it's not just the love, it's defined by Christ's love on behalf of his church. He doesn't just say, love your wife. He says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he sums it up by giving himself up. It's a sacrificial love. And it's not just that. Have a goal in mind. The goal was to sanctify and to wash and to cleanse his wife. The weight of the text is on the husband, period. And so it should be. No Christian wife for the first century would have been insulted by the reading of this text whatsoever. There would have been no what-if scenarios like I gave you at that marriage I did. None whatsoever. They knew the clear implications of what Paul was saying, both the woman and the husband. They would have experienced the love and liberty of the Lord in these words. They would have rejoiced at these words. Husbands would have rejoiced. This is not a heavy commandment. This gives a husband direction. This gives a husband hope. It gives a husband purpose. It fuels our prayer life. It gives us understanding of our failures and our weaknesses. No, this is good news. It should, be, it should never be anything but good news to both men and women. These People in the ancient world were saturated. These Christians in the ancient world, their hearts were saturated with apostolic teaching. They knew Christ. When the apostle opened up his mouth, Christ was there. There was no second guessing. It wasn't ten ways to be a better husband. It, it, it was nothing like that. They elevated Christ to such a place that you, you got smaller. Every sermon you got smaller and smaller and more dependent and more dependent on the Lord in your life. And that's what preaching is supposed to do. Preaching is supposed to bring us down to earth for what we really are. We are debtors to the Lord. And whatever he says goes. Also, the ancient world understood headship. They understood that. Today's world, we don't really understand headship. But there's a purpose for it. Someone has to be in control. Taking the lead for the benefit of the whole group. A home without a head is is heading for disaster. It's a recipe for chaos. It's like an army without a commander-in-chief. You can't have it. To be sure, both parties' roles need to be defined in order to clearly uh, benefit and, and work at an optimal level. Roles need to be defined. The scriptures are not shy or ashamed to define the roles of a man and a woman. We spoke about that two weeks ago. So it is with God's design for marriage as Paul goes to the ancient Jewish text to show both Romans and Greeks and Jews how to apply God's wisdom of the Old Testament in a New Testament way. This headship is most clearly seen in the spiritual and moral leadership of the husband in the household. Not the husband to say, jump off the bridge. The leadership of the husband is to plow through the culture, making a way for the wife and the family to follow Christ. 
That's his job. To be so close to the Lord that the family is safe in the shadow of the husband who goes toe-to-toe himself as Paul did and as Jesus did with the cultural norms and, and perversions of his day. And he's the leader. He's the head. Otherwise, the family will succumb to the culture. If the husband is not the head, there will be a vacuum in that home. Who's going to speak into the children's hearts? Who's going to speak into the family's life? If the husband's not going to do it in the name of the Lord, the culture will. And the culture does. Period. Thank goodness for many godly mothers. For the husbands that have forfeited and been delinquent in their duties. It doesn't mean that a wife does not have a leadership role in the house. Of course she does. But the, but the role falls on the husband to be there, to be alive and be active. As Christ loved the church. That is the husband's role. And the wife is there to respect and be a helper to him. To encourage him and pray for him. Because the wife knows the responsibility that's on the husband by God. That he is highly accountable to his savior. To his creator. To his God. And the wife knows that I need to pray. And pray for the strength of my husband. Because he has to stand before the Lord. To give an account of his stewardship of the family. What do you think, husbands are just going to stay there? No, they're not just responsible for their own sin. Responsible for the family unit. Thank goodness for Christ, amen? Amen. He's, He's taken all our failures, all our weaknesses. No one can live up to this. It's by grace God does this. The third thing we need to know is Paul in the first three chapters have lifted up Christ as the cosmic ruler of the universe. Can't miss this. He's the head of all things. And he made peace between all men, Jew and Gentile, by showing all men their common need of salvation. He tore down in chapter 2 the dividing walls of separation between all men, between Jew and Gentile. He carries over now into the fifth chapter. And he shows that Christ is not just a cosmic ruler of the universe. He's the ruler of the house too. He's the ruler of husbands and wives, parents and children, slave and masters. That's chapter 6. And the overriding theme in Ephesians is a special peace that Christ brings wherever he's invited The husband really sets the stage at home. It's by God's design and by Christ's example. He has that one command, and that's to love, with several characteristics. And I want to go through the characteristics. The first thing this love of the, the love of the husband is a sacrificial love. In the same way, Paul says, Christ gave himself for his wife. This is love that gives it all for the wife. To die a thousand times is the husband's job. Love that loses regard for self as Christ emptied himself 
To become a servant for the church. To die for the church. Though he, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't equate equality with something of God to be grass. What he did, he didn't give up his divinity, but he gave up his right to use his divine nature. He gave it up, and he lived as a man. And he all did it all for his church. And that's what a husband does. A husband dies. So his wife may live. A husband dies and almost takes on a brand new identity. He becomes something else. For the sake of his wife. Like Christ became. So understand something. Jesus will always be the God man. Heaven. The whole trinity in a sense has been changed. Christ will never be an invisible God. Christ will always be the God man. Heaven will always have the, the fleshly nature of Jesus Christ in it. Heaven has changed when Christ took on humanity. A husband has to lose his identity for the sake of his wife. It's a refining love used in the word sanctified, cleansed, and washed. Such caring and such concern that has a positive effect on one's character. Where culture... Pain, and this is important, where culture, pain, and the past does not define who the wife is. Does not define who the wife is. It doesn't define her character. It's not the last word on the wife. But in a very real way, Christ does. And a husband exemplifies this. No matter what the culture does, no matter what a pain a woman has experienced, in the love of Christ and her husband, wholeness, hopefulness, and security are found. Many times if I give an example from, from a negative, I'll give a positive example from a negative one. Many people go through divorce and go through bad marriages, both men and women, not just women, but I'm speaking to women right now. And what happens is a negative sense of bitterness comes and, 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 and a brokenness, and they get guarded, and they get suspicious, and they can't open themselves up. They can't be vulnerable to a man again. Very, very difficult. It becomes very, very, very difficult. Because there's a wound. Only Christ can heal that wound. What Paul is speaking to here, this is not Paul the theologian, though he is theologizing. It's not Paul the evangelist or the missionary, though he is. This is Paul with extreme pastoral insight and sensitivity to the woman. Remember how I explained the culture that this was written into. The low view of women, the low view of marriage... Paul is addressing that as much as any pastor should address that from the pulpit. And reminding them of the value and the worth and the dignity of a woman. Something that easily could be stolen by the culture and by our past. Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying in the words, the husband should be like Christ. 
who sanctified, that means set apart. When Christ sanctified us, he, he took us out of the world and brought him close to himself. And then through sanctification, through, through washing and cleansing, he changes us from what? The inside out. How does he do that? He does that by grace. Christ elevated us and bring dignity even back to us, men and women. And so much so that the husband now does the same thing to the wife. Has this cleansing, character refining uh, 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 emphasis, uh, this power in her life. That's what love does. And of course, women and wives do the same thing to men. Men are being charged with a different understanding on how to approach their wives, how to approach women. Think about what I just said. What this culture would be if this was up and running in every man's life. Even if it was up and running in every man who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Also, it's a safe love. It's seen in the words that he loves his wife as his own body. What man hates his own body, he says. But he nourishes his body. So also the wife, the husband should do to the wife. He's the head. If the leader dies, if the wife is his body, and if it's unattended to, the whole head dies. That's how close the wife is to the husband who's the head. If the body is left unattended, if the body is not cherished, if the body is not nurtured, if the body is not protected, if the body is not strengthened, if the body, the wife is not guarded on a 24-7 basis, then the head will eventually die. This is not love for convenience sake. There's nothing convenient about being a husband. There's nothing convenient about being married. There's nothing convenient about being a father or being a mother. Convenience, throw the word out. It's not there anymore. At all. It's not meant to be. It's 24-7 on God to watch over your wife. An example of this would be... A raging storm, a heavy tempest, maybe of rain, maybe on the ocean, and, and you find yourself in the security of a boat or a house. That you know the storm is fierce. You know it. But you know you're nice and cozy up against that fireplace. You just know it's not going to get to you. And that's how a wife should feel. A wife should feel that the culture is so raging so stormy, such a low view of sex, such a low view of women, such a low view of marriage, but the wife feels safe and comfort in her husband's love. A wife feels that much of her identity naturally flows from her husband now. It's not forced, it's not coerced. It's a one flesh dynamic. Two different people, but one entity of heart and mind and mission and worship to the Lord. With this kind of sacrificial, nurturing, protecting, safe love that the wife experiences over time, again and again and again, over many circumstances of life, obedience and respect is sure to follow, sure to follow. 
when all you can see is the husband leading in the right direction spiritually, breaking down the scriptures, exemplifying the love of Christ, exemplifying what it means to be a man of God. Understand something. Love and respect doesn't have to be coerced. It doesn't have to be commanded. It naturally flows. Naturally flows. And that brings harmony to the household and it's fertile ground to raise godly children. The church really should be a very healthy place. And if you're not too sure about that, if you look at the requirements and qualifications of a pastor in Timothy and Titus, you will understand that a man, the husband of one wife, really needs to have his act together. Because if he can't control his own family, how can he control the household of God? Can't do it. Can't do it. The emphasis is on the man. In my summation, not much has changed today, wouldn't you say? We live in a culture where women, sex, marriage, even manhood is so under attack. Let me tell you something. I'm going to call you out. Men are real wimps. They're real. They're moral, spiritual wimps. They do not take the lead. They don't. You come to a prayer meeting, there's eight women and there's three men. I've been a Christian 25 years. That percentage has not changed. It's women that are holding it down. It's man's job to step up in the front and die, not just for your own wife. You die for women, period. Period. It is a man's job. Today's culture, even Christian culture, men are cowards. They're looking for convenience. They're looking for comfort. And they're looking for a woman to do a man's job. Sad. Even in the Christian church. Understand something, women. Ten million husbands, ten million godly husbands can never do a restoration for a woman that one Savior did for them. You can have 10 million godly examples, but no one could ever restore you like Jesus Christ. No, Jesus Christ is your husband, like he's my husband. I need Christ as much as a woman does. A man needs Christ as much as any woman does. We all need Christ. Christ is the true husband. The only reason Paul can exhort men to be men is because Christ, the real man, finally came. He doesn't say, be like Adam. He says, be like Christ. Husband needs to be leaders. So much beauty and power of this union between a man and a woman is truly lost today. It really is. Men have the responsibility. It's man's job to lead the way. It's not me saying it, it's the scriptures. Intuitively, we know that. Men can take the lead physically. Men are called to lead spiritually. Period. End of story. It is our job. We need to take the initiative of being teachers of grace, exemplifiers of grace to our family. We need to exemplify to family, wife, and community 
the saving graces and mercies of Jesus Christ. We need to show people what forgiveness really does to a man on the inside. We need to become soft, vulnerable, pliable, compassionate, concerned, caring, and taking the initiative on teaching people who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that the charge is laid before us by the Apostle Paul, that men, husbands, ought to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, to cleanse her, and to wash her. And any man who does not love his wife does not love his own body. Any man who does not cherish and nurture and nourish his wife does not nurture and nourish and take care of his own body. Father God, teach us this high view of marriage. I pray for men, I pray for husbands, that we truly take the initiative, that we die to self, that we don't get caught up in the cultural image of what a man is, but we take our cue from the real man, Jesus Christ. And by grace, we can honor him. And by grace and mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we can lead the way in our families' lives. We can take the initiative. We can take the head. We can take the burden off the women. And we can finally lead the way. God, we ask you to stir up our hearts in Jesus' name.